Welcome to the Sacramental Charismatic. I'm your host, Luke Garrity, and on this podcast, I discuss topics related to the church, the Holy Spirit, mission, and how these subjects intersect within sacramentality. I'm a pastor theologian living in Northern California, and while I'm primarily discussing topics related to these themes and interviewing relevant voices, I'll also discuss whatever else I feel like because, well, this is my podcast. My website, LukeGarity.com, has plenty of blog articles for you to delve into, and I'd love to invite you to find me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and subscribe to my YouTube channel. Let's go. Hey everyone, a number of years ago, uh, when I was doing graduate work at the University of Birmingham, not Birmingham, I was exploring many of the topics that went on to form the ideas in my dissertation. Uh, Essentially, I made an argument that the Vineyard Movement, which has historically been influenced by a lowercase e evangelical and lowercase c charismatic uh, traditions, should incorporate and lean into sacramental theology. And while I was reading and engaging with all these various theologians uh, that I was I was just really enjoying, I stumbled upon an article in the Numa Journal by a theologian by the name of Chris E. W. Green, and the title of that article was, Then Their Eyes Were Opened, Pentecostal Reflections on the Church's Scripture and the Lord's Supper. The article was super formative for me, and I'm really excited to have my friend Chris on this episode of the Sacramental Charismatic. So Chris, we are so glad you're here. Welcome, welcome. Thank you, man. I'm excited about it. It's been good to get to know you over the years and your work, and excited about the conversation. Yeah, I'm, uh, you know, we've done, I guess this will be our second podcast. Uh, the first one, we yeah. danced around sacramentality, but we talked a lot about um, art and also a lot of uh, racial reconciliation, ethnic reconciliation, which you've been a huge influence yeah. in my life on. So yeah, it's fun. So this is going to be fun. We're going to talk about sacramentality. But before we do that, I'd love to just kind of hear, you know, how you're doing, what you're up to, COVID 19s going on. Um, you know, the world is a crazy place, uh, you know, from two months ago. So what's going on in your life? Yeah, so I know you know this, but I just found out on Monday, a couple of days ago, that my contract w- won't be renewed when it's up at June, June 30th, and it won't be renewed for the fall, which, you know, caught us off guard, of course. I, I wasn't prepared prepared for that. Again, that's not quite true. I, I think I was probably prepared in ways I didn't know, but still surprised by it. And that's put us into a scramble mode. My wife, we have three kids, and my wife and I um, are moving as quickly as we can to kind of get our house on the market. And, and I'm talking to everybody I can talk to about a job for the fall. Um, mm. And I have a few leads. I mean, at, and I feel pretty confident that I at least will be able to land some adjunct work um, if, not, if nothing else, but we'll see kind of how that shakes out. So it's, you know, we're not, we're not exactly, um, I think I was in shock for the first hour or two, maybe, maybe a little longer, I think I've got my head around it now, uh, but obviously still still surprised, and it, it's 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 put a lot of pressure on us to figure something out really quickly. Yeah, 
Yeah, I was, I mean, as I was sharing earlier, just, it was, you know, pretty shocking to, for me, um, because when I think about like, you know, the who's who of Pentecostal scholars out there doing global, global, uh, you know, influential work, uh, you're, you're one of the top, top people out there. So uh, I'm confident, you know, you're going to end up being able to continue doing lots of cool God's work. Uh, But yeah, it's still like, oh man. In fact, I really wish that I had an extra $2 million in our church's budget just to hire a theologian in residence and and have you come out here because then we could do podcasts live whenever we want. So, actually, yeah. If 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 money if two million dollars falls in your lap, think of me. Absolutely, I, I, you'll be the first. You'll just so you know. <laughs> there you go. So, you listen. Go. Um, you know, I guess if you wouldn't mind, um, you know, I'm thinking of this essay because uh, you know it, it really does a good job of I think. Um, showing and demonstrating why um, the Eucharist or communion or the Lord's Supper, uh, why that is such an important aspect of worship, and not just worship, but it's also a formative practice or rhythm or habit that is shaping churches, um, you know, and, and but it gets to like the relationship between the Eucharist and Scripture, which I thought was really fascinating, um, because there's obviously been a lot of reflection on on Luke 24 and the road to Emmaus and you know, I know that uh, there's a there's a number of theologians. Uh, N.T. Wright, I know, has talked about this, and uh, Dane Ortland has talked about the relationship between Luke 24 and the canonical uh, relationship to Genesis chapter three. But you just talk about this really um, beautiful relationship between Eucharist and Scripture. So, if you wouldn't mind for our listeners, like, give us the argument. I know it was written in 2013. You probably have, you know, moved on from many of those things. But like, summarize it for us, for our listeners. Yeah, so you know, it's been years since I've read the article, so I'm going to say what I think I said, and you correct me <laughs> if, I, if I've gotten it wrong. I, I should say, say the backstory on that is I was really, really still pretty early in my career, and I was at that time pastoring a church in Oklahoma City, and I had a, a mentor who had told me. I should make the Lord's Supper the focus of my altar call every service. So do it was a he was a Pentecostal minister and he said I think you should you know make your altar call but make your altar call in part a call to the table. Mm-hmm. And that was man I was in no way prepared for that. <laughs> like I like I had no that uh, I grew up in a Pentecostal church where we did communion once a year and it was all risk and no reward, right? We believed that if you took it unworthily, if you took it with sin in your life, you could die. Yeah. But there was no like sacramental grace, right? It was just the, the threat yeah. of death. And, he, and even as a kid, I mean, I, I could do that cost benefit analysis. Like there's nothing to gain and everything to lose. Like why in the world yeah. would I do it? Anyway, yeah. it, it just, the, the, the Lord's Supper had been no part of my spirituality, not really. And then for him to say that, I'm not sure why I took his advice, but I did. <laughs> and, and man, it changed my life. It absolutely changed my life. And mm. not long after that, I started the PhD program. And this is what I ended up writing about, which eventually led to a book. Um, but while I was moving to weekly communion, I decided, you know what? I kind of have to preach about this now. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. like, what am I, I going to say? And 
Luke 24 was the way in for me. It was for lots of reasons. I think as a Pentecostal, you know, the focus on the experience of God, the encounter with God, and that's what Luke 24 is about. But it's it's an inversion of almost everything I thought encounter with God was like. You know, I mean, they're they're with Jesus, but they don't know they're with Jesus, right? Like he mm-hmm. he is he's with them and and yet they have no sense of that. And one of the things that really got me was that he taught them everything the scriptures say about himself and they still don't see him. Mm-hmm. And something about that impressed me because it, uh, with this reality that there's something about the Bible alone, even when Jesus is your teacher, that doesn't in itself open eyes, you know, that they, here's Jesus teaching them everything about himself and he remains a stranger to them. It's not until after their eyes are opened at the supper that they realize, ah, this is who, this is who was talking with us. And, and this is why we felt what we were feeling, but didn't know what to make of it. Mm. And something about that story just captured me, right? That, that here is, this is why it's important that we come to the table every week to have our, to have our eyes opened to the story of the brokenness of Jesus, his, his broken body and his shed blood. And one of the things the yeah. mentor had said to me was whatever you're preaching about, if you can't transition from that to the story of the cross, it isn't a gospel message. Yeah, that's right. And so he was essentially encouraging me to think about communion as the tether for my preaching, right? Like this is, let this pull you back to what, what's essential. And it did do that, but it, it did a lot more than that too, right? I mean, it, it started, it quick, quickly revolutionized everything for me. It started mm-hmm. there, but it didn't end there. Yeah, that's, that's really powerful. Yeah, I mean, I, I like to think about how the Eucharist, um, it, it does so many things, you know, like when I was growing up, real similar uh, to you, communion was like never a celebration, first of all. If you smile, you've probably come really close to, you know, like you're about to get, you're about to get cosmic killjoy God throwing down lightning bolts on you. Um, but I remember when I started, you know, reading scripture more and, and thinking a little bit um, more about, about what was happening in the context of uh, the Eucharist. I, you know, obviously there's an emphasis on the cross, the, you know, forgiveness. There's, I think it's really interesting how Paul has an emphasis on social justice in First Corinthians 11, right? Like, make sure that everybody is able to receive, yep. you know, grace. Um, and then I thought it was really fascinating that um, you see this this um, opportunity to recenter and reorient um, our lives around around the story of Jesus and the kingdom, and you know, and the sacrificial nature of of Jesus. And yeah, there's a lot of really cool things there. So, did you find? Um, you know, when we when we transitioned, so I had we had the same experience. You know, I had been pastoring a vineyard church for about eleven years. We did weekly weekly Eucharist. Uh, you know, was part of our worship service. We were in a highly Catholic, highly Lutheran context, so it was not any. It was not a hard sell because everybody was like, "Wait, you know, churches don't yeah. do that." It was like a really like <laughs> what? Yeah. Um, so it was not. It was almost like you had to do it. You had to do it weekly. A to be taken seriously, and then also as a missional thing too. In a, in addition to the formative aspect of it, but moving to California, um, I started you know pastoring in a church context where it was kind of irregular. I mean, once a year, twice a year, um, and what I found was uh, there was 
um, some pushback on, you know, well, why would we do it weekly, you know, when it's it's going to minimize the the value of the Eucharist and things like that. So I yeah. guess, you know, help us make a case, you know, because I'm already with you, obviously, you know, make a case for a weekly, yeah. weekly sacramental theology being embodied in the practice of the Eucharist. Yeah, I mean, I think maybe the best place is to start with the way that practice changed me. I mean, I think there are lots of ways in which, you know, again, when I started, I was just simply thinking of it for its kind of, um, its power to remind us of the story, right? So it was still a very memorialistic notion. It was still very much about the reason the supper is important is that it reminds us of the story that matters, which is true. I think, I just think that that's, that's far from the whole truth. Right. And what started happening really quickly is I started to realize that what's happening in this meal is more than a symbol of other things that have happened, but is itself a reality, right? It is. And it's a reality I didn't even know was possible. And it impinges on all, all other perceptions of reality. Right. And, and this is part of what I think is going on, like in that Luke 24 story in that they're with Jesus, but they don't really know what's going on. They don't know it's him. And, and it's when their eyes are open, right. That he disappears from their sight. And yet they become most completely like him. And it it took me a long time to kind of figure out all the theological or, and I still of course haven't, but I mean, it started before I started to realize all of the possible theological implications of believing in sacrament and what that does to the way the world works. Right. So Mm. I, I think that in our tradition, people who grew up like you and I have grown up, we, we tend to think about when we come to the Lord's supper, we tend to, to be drawn to two aspects of it. One is the narrative aspect that I've already mentioned. The other is the experiential aspect, right? And when I did my PhD work and started reading early Pentecostal stories and realized how central the Lord's Supper was to their spirituality, which we, we may want to talk about today, um, because that totally took me by surprise, too. Yeah. But one of the things that, that they emphasize, right, is that the Lord meets us here at the table, right? The Lord is present. So there's this real emphasis on the experience of God. But if you keep pressing, and I think both of those things are true, let me be clear. I think the the narrative aspect and the experiential aspect, I think, are are true. But if you keep pressing past that deeper into what it means to believe in sacramental presence, then everything starts to shift. And Mm. the way you understand everything, it's not necessarily you believe different things, but that you believe all the things you already believed, but you believe them differently. Like you, you hold them, you see them in a, in a kind of different light. And, you know, I, I, I think that's a kind of Copernican shift, right? When you, when you get to the place that you see the world sacramentally, it's, it's hard to recover from that. I think. Yeah. Well do this. Um, I think that's a great, um, a great spot to maybe, uh, have you reflect on a little bit because, you know, I'm originally, I kind of have been brainstorming this idea for this podcast for, I mean, it's probably been a couple of years of in the back of my mind, uh, thinking about wanting to really start thinking more intentionally about, um, the, you know, the wedding of the sacramental and the charismatic traditions 
Uh, and because what I what I found is my my I think we probably both agree on this is like I think that the more charismatic you are, or the you know the more Pentecostal or however you want to, they're no more pneumatological. How about we'll say that uh, you are? It seems like it's such an easy on ramp into the sacramental uh, stream of Christianity because. Uh, sacramentality is all, it's it's so rich with pneumatological implications, I guess. Um, so there's a lot of people, though, I know that are tuning in and, and keep messaging me and asking me, like, when are you going to get to, like, defining what a sacrament is or sacramental oh, okay, theology yeah. and sacramentality? So uh, I, I plan on doing that in a future podcast, but I'd love to get, um, you know, in your, in your, like, you know, in your way of framing the conversation around sacramentality, how do you define sacramentality or sacramental theology? And then um, maybe maybe define a sacrament for us in your as you think about those because those are all related, but obviously in in you know the literature they're used differently. Sure. Yeah. And obviously this is you know you could spend a lifetime studying these things and and, and different theologians and different theological traditions use some of the same terms in slightly different ways. But but this is the heart of it, I think. A sacrament is a sign that accomplishes what it signifies. So water baptism is a sacrament in that the sign is washing in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And if it's sacramental, what we're saying is that sign, in that sign, being enacted, God is doing what the sign suggests. Right. So mm. if the if the sign is washing in the name of God, that's in fact what's happening. We're being washed by God from our sins. Right. So, you know, the sacramental view of water baptism is not that water baptism saves you. I mean, no, no one would mm. think that it's that God works in that act to accomplish what that act signifies. Right. So that he, mm. he God, who alone could do this, washes away our sin. And at the table. The, 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 the sign is feasting on bread and wine in giving thanks to God. And that, we trust, becomes the body and blood of Christ to us. And is not just a sign of those things, but is in fact the way in which God is acting, bringing about mm. what they signify, right? So like the, in the language of Scripture, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 10, which this is interesting, I'm sure you've noticed this yourself, but 1 Corinthians 11 dominates Pentecostal, his, historically has dominated Pentecostal reflection on the Eucharist. And yeah. that, that's problematic because it's not the only text, even in 1 Corinthians. <laughs> it's, in yeah, fact, right. there are several right. other really important texts in 1 Corinthians, and one of them is 1 Corinthians 10, where Paul says, because there is one loaf, there is one body, and because we all drink from one cup, we share in yeah. the Lord. Mm-hmm. Right? So I, I think the way the church traditionally has read him, and I think the right way to read him is he's saying, listen, these signs, this bread, this cup, God is acting in our eating and drinking of those things to bring about what they symbolize, to bring about what they signify. And yeah. so in, in a sentence, then, a sacrament is a sign that does what it signifies. It, it, it is, of course, God is the one acting, but it, it, God accomplishes what it signifies. Yeah, I, I mean, that seems like 
that's one of the things. I mean, I think if memory serves me correctly, I mean, Paul uses koinonia right there in First Corinthians ten, right, to describe the the relationship um, between the the sharing, right? It's it's a or exactly partnership right. or yeah, it's it's obviously there's more going on than just this symbolic Zwinglian, um, I guess, approach to that. Uh, yeah, that's really helpful. So um, th- this, I'm kind of skipping ahead, maybe. Um, with this next question, but I am kind of curious. Uh, I saw this meme recently a friend sent me, uh, and it was, it actually got me laughing because normally memes are just annoying to me, but this one was pretty funny. It has a picture of, of somebody and it says Rome and it says, we have seven sacraments. And then it has Presbyterians and it says, we have two sacraments and it has Lutherans. And it says, you guys are counting sacraments. And then it has a Baptist <laughs> and it's what are sacraments. <laughs> and uh, so I, I always think that's funny because I, I think when I'm uh, talking to people who are less, um, maybe less, uh, influenced by sacramental thinking and reflection, mm-hmm. it's always the question that comes up. Well, how many sacraments do you believe there are? And you know, there's a, a lot of discussion over whether we should use the language of sacrament or ordinances. And I don't really care about having that conversation a whole lot because I think it's kind of a you know, it's it's framed on an entire different theological framework, I guess. Um, but I would be curious when you think about the number of of sacraments, A, is that a helpful question to even ask, or is there another question? And B, if you do, what what would be your response to that? How many sacraments do you think there are? Well, I think it is a helpful question, but it's one of those questions that's helpful pretty deep into the conversation, not not at the beginning of the conversation. Mm. Because I, I think, at least in my experience, both pastorally and theologically, I found that it you you have to wrestle with these concepts for a long time before you start to even know what you're really saying. Mm-hmm. And you know, I think for a long time, in fact, I would say even when I wrote that paper, I still didn't quite get what a sacrament is exactly and how it differs from what I had. I mean, I think I knew enough to say what I said. I, I think I still agree with what I said, but. I would just say what I think of now as sacramental is so much more robust than what I could have thought of mm-hmm. then, right? Because it just takes a long time to, to grasp the concept, right? And I, I think this is, this is probably too simple, but I think I can identify stages in my thought, right? So I think before I wrote that faith, before I had that conversation with my mentor, I thought of the Lord's Supper as, you know, a kind of, um, visual aid <laughs> to <laughs> to the gospel you know it's like oh isn't this neat right like um juice looks like blood and bread looks like body or something you know mm. and then when i first started thinking about sacramentality i was thinking about how it's god is actually doing something god is actually present and active mm-hmm. and that was already a major shift right like, like a major shift for me and then when I started to understand, but sacramentality is a way of thinking about how reality works. Mm, yeah. That's an altogether different shift, right? So yeah. I think it's pretty easy for people in our tradition, like you made the point about charismatics. I think, I think that first shift is easy for charismatics to make. The idea that God is active. I mean, yeah, <laughs> yeah. of course, right? Duh. And it <laughs> Duh. is. <laughs> right. But then the next step, 
of what that means that God is active in these ways, and not just what it means for God, but what it means for reality itself, the way we engage reality. Like that takes time. And I think that at some point you do get to the question of how many sacraments are there, but it needs to come deep enough into the conversation that you kind of know what you're, mm-hmm. what you're saying. I'm, I'm pretty yeah. much in the Lutheran frame here in that I think um, really there are two fundamental sacraments and then there are sacramental realities that play off of that mm. and we can't number those. So yeah. baptism and the Lord's Supper absolutely are sacraments. Those are the, you know, in, in the ecumenical conversation, they're, they're the gospel sacraments. Everything else we're going to say from that needs to come back to those realities, right? So I, I would be ready to affirm the sacramentality of, of ordination, that ministers are ordained sacramentally. But that depends upon um, the, the convictions of water baptism and the Lord's Supper, right? That what we yeah, mean by yeah. sacrament, we mean, we mean in those yeah. ways. Um, yeah. And that gets difficult because when you get to something like marriage as a sacrament, a lot of the rules change in terms of how the term sacrament is is working. Mm-hmm. So it gets really complicated really, really quickly. But in short, yeah. I mean, am I answering your question? Is this helpful? Yeah, no, I, I think that's really helpful. Um, I've, I've, I don't know if this is, the way I've kind of thought about that is I like to use, and this is maybe playing on, on words a little bit, but I like to think of, yeah, um, well, I, I would say like when I was writing my dissertation, in the midst of, you know, sacramentality, it's like everything sacramental, which then brings up, you know, the, if everything's sacramental, yeah. nothing's sacramental, yeah. right? Uh, but I, I think yeah. I'm at this place, yeah, where I'd, I'd say the two capital S sacraments would be baptism and Eucharist. Uh, but I like that word sacramental describe, uh, to describe, I think marriage can be sacramental. Uh, I think in our, in our traditions of the charismatic tradition, I mean, I think in the in the vineyard movement, which you know we're kind of known for our worship, I think our theology of worship is very sacramental. It is a means of encountering God, uh, which I know you know Pentecostals have long believed that. I think laying on of hands, uh, you know Dan Tomberlin's book, um, I think Pentecostal sacraments, yeah. you know he lays out, um, and I don't think he gets too much into the weeds of sacramental versus sacrament and whatnot, but seems like in our traditions there's definitely. Um, you know, a, a lot of, uh, I guess, room for that. But I love what you said about how um, at the end of the day, we are, I guess, in some ways talking about a world worldview. You know, Hans Boersma has been a huge influence in my thinking about using that word reality to describe the sacramental, you know, tapestry, so to speak. Um, and yeah. that's, so no, yeah, I really, I, think I really, yeah. yeah, I really love that. Yeah, I, I think it's a, Again, it's hard to, it's such a, you know, I, I gave a talk a few weeks ago on evil and afterwards this guy caught me and said, Hey, I loved that, but I don't know that I understood it all. Can you give me the elevator pitch? I was like, listen, man, there's no elevator pitch for Christian responses <laughs> to evil. Right. And, and I feel the same way about sacraments. There's no, there's no elevator pitch. Right. I mean, the, mm. the, it, this is a long conversation that requires a lot of attention. And the, I think some of us will find our way in via experience. I mean, I know people who've had profound experiences at the sacrament, but in terms of getting your mind around it so that you say it in a meaningful way, so that what you're saying is intelligible, that takes, that takes a lot of time and it takes a lot of, a lot of reading and 
and reflection. You know, so I, I mean, I encourage people. I guess I want to say I want to make a distinction here between the experience I would want people to have in a worship service of the Lord's table versus what I think it requires for ministers and theologians to understand what what we're claiming. Right. I, I don't think everybody in our churches has to go through all this work before they can come to the table rightly. I, I mean, it's, I, I totally reject that. Right. I don't I don't at all. In fact, partly because I am the sacramentalist, I don't believe that it, its value is in my understanding of it. The Lord's Supper is the Lord's Supper, whether I have any idea what's going on or not. I don't bring mm. meaning to it by yeah. my understanding. This is this is what I think is fundamentally wrong with memorialism, the idea that the table means what I bring to it. Now, I think the way I come to it matters, but it doesn't make it what it is. Yeah. So, for instance, some, someone like uh, Thomas Aquinas is really helpful here, medieval Catholic theologian, mm-hmm. in which he talks about how what we our spiritual state when we come to the table does not at all determine whether or not Christ is present, but it does shape how that presence matters for us. You're listening to The Sacramental Charismatic. In addition to this podcast, I have a fairly active YouTube channel where I create theological content for pastors, churches, and normal everyday followers of Jesus. As you can probably imagine, creating content like this has a number of costs associated with it. In addition to the various pieces of equipment and software that are needed, there are costs related to hosting and other administrative needs. Would you consider supporting this podcast? For just $5 a month, you could help me continue creating these resources. Simply click my Patreon account in the description from this podcast. Thank you so much. And now let's get back to our podcast. My question in relation to that is uh, getting to the issue of, of uh, open table versus closed table. So here's my, my experience, and then you can tell me why I'm wrong <laughs> if, if you disagree. Uh, you know, I found, I found myself before I was, um, you know, more, I would use the word sacramental to describe myself, uh, charismatic, but, you know, I did my MDiv in a reformed environment, so I was... I, I knew all about the closed table arguments. Uh, I remember reading lots of debates that were trying to make it very clear that Judas was not at the Last Supper. <laughs> he, he, you know, lots of those, and uh, and so I I could you know I could lean on First Corinthians eleven pretty well uh, to um, really think about whether or not you know um, the table should be open. And I knew all about the Presbyterian, uh, you know, coins that were used uh, to to be given to people who were worthy. But I found myself that the more that I became um, sacramental in, in, in that I embraced this worldview that saw um, things, actions, activities uh, that were formative were also means of experiencing God's grace, God's presence, uh, his love, um, the more I started having a challenge um, with a closed table. It's like the more sacramental I became, the more of an open table advocate I, I became because I saw it as a a means of encountering Jesus, even if it's the first time. And then I read, uh, I think it's Forgotten Power by William D. Ortega, um, who is an Episcopalian, I believe an Episcopalian Pentecostal 
type of thinker. And he makes a case for that from the Second Great Awakening, you know, that that was a prominent feature within their their uh, preaching and whatnot. So I'd love to know, like, what are your thoughts on on open table? Because I love what you just said. Aquinas kind of gets us to this place where we start asking how. It's not whether the, the Eucharist is shaping us. It's how it's impacting us, right? So what are your thoughts mm-hmm. on that? Yeah, a lot of things. So I'll talk a little bit, and you tell me to shut up when, when you're ready for me to shut up. I, I, I think— I'm ready. I got 30 <laughs> minutes ready to go. <laughs> I think some of this—there's so many factors at play, but let's talk about the biblical one first. I think one of the problems we have, and you've already hinted at this a couple of times, is that because we're dominated by a certain reading of one text, right? So we're, we're hyper-focused on 1 Corinthians 11, and we're hyper-focused on a particular reading of that passage, too. Because of that kind of um, hyper-focus, in most of our churches, I think the Lord's Supper is kind of one note. You know, it's a, it's a somber reflection on what Christ did for you and how you shouldn't take that lightly or else. Right? At least that's my experience, or the way 1 Corinthians 11 is read, which mm-hmm. I think is a misreading of 1 Corinthians 11. But even if it weren't a misreading, that's still only one text in the scriptural witness, right? And as I said already, 1 Corinthians 10, 1 Corinthians 6 also have things to say about mm-hmm. what, what's happening at the table. But, but leave that aside for a moment. Even if we were to say that Paul's account of the Lord's Supper is primarily about the death of Jesus and primarily about whether or not we are living in sin when we come to the table, that's not Luke's focus. Right? So in Luke, mm-hmm. the, the focus is on the presence of Christ at the table— and that the table is the table of the kingdom at which all are welcome. Right? So I, I say all this to say, I think if you start with Paul, and especially if you start with that particular reading of 1 Corinthians 11, then you can get to closed table arguments pretty easily. But if you start with Luke, where there are multiple meals that run through the Gospel of Luke and into the book of Acts, where you realize that Luke's focus on the Lord's Supper is about the table fellowship of Jesus with sinners. That's the whole point Luke is making, Mm. is that Jesus eats with people he shouldn't eat with, and that he welcomes them into his kingdom precisely by welcoming them into his table. Then that changes the conversation automatically. It doesn't necessarily determine the outcome, but it it makes other conversations possible. Maybe I'll I'll put it like that. And I I would argue that there's like a Lucan theology. Isn't that... Yeah, I was just going to say, um, you know, there's been a lot of books that have focused on uh, the table fellowship of Luke, but I'm thinking of one of my one of my favorite Bible verses uh, is in Luke chapter seven, where we read that um, Jesus Himself acknowledges that uh, that He came eating and drinking. You know, like that was yeah. that was kind of the yeah. orientation of His of His ministry. Uh, and so, like I've always, I guess I've always looked at the Gospels. I think you're making such a great point. So we look at 1 Corinthians chapter 11, and that's the only isolated text that we use to determine whether or not closed table or open table is our position, completely ignoring the table fellowship that we have displayed in literally all the Gospels, not just <laughs> Luke, right? I mean, we see Jesus had some peculiar friends. Um, you know, he hung out with some people that he was not worried about them, you know, impacting his uh, reputation, even though they they would have. So. That's yeah, beautiful. I mean, so you look at Luke as having a having a particular approach to uh, to the kingdom of God, and yeah. being a lot more um, grounded in encountering God. 
Yeah, well, I mean, again, I think Paul's theology of the Eucharist is different than we think it is. But I'm just saying, even if we took that assumption, mm-hmm. it's it's still too narrow because yeah. there's a Luke, there, there are Lucan emphases that are that are, that lie elsewhere. And I think John has a theology of the Lord's Supper too. That's something else um, altogether. In fact, yeah, I, I would argue that there right. are multiple theologies of communion in the New Testament. Yeah, absolutely. And that we should. The church should practice all of them over the course of the—this is one of the reasons yeah. I think something like the liturgical year is so important, that there are times to be somber. Mm. There are times to reflect on our sinfulness and, and the fact that we're forgiven. But, I mean, if all we're ever doing is, is sobriety and never, you know, delight in the, in the joy of God, something, something is deeply amiss, yeah. I think. And so, you know, I yeah, think yeah. even if a church— you know, if a charismatic church or Pentecostal church were to kind of uh, shrug off the, the call to do a liturgical year, I think at the very least, they should move toward having different dimensions of a kind of wider range of effectivity in their worship. And mm-hmm. this, is one, this is one way to that end, right? To show that in Luke, mm. the, note, the notes are about joy and about presence and about radical openness. In Paul, there there is a lot about. I mean, he says, you know, fascinatingly in First Corinthians, he, you know, at the very beginning of the chapter, he said, I mean, the very beginning of the book, he says, "I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified." Right? Yeah. And then at the end, he tells them, and this is how I did that, because it's the supper that proclaims Christ crucified. Mm-hmm. Right. So there is a way in which I think Paul's emphasis is on the supper as the realization of crucifixion. Uh, of suffering with yeah. with Christ, but that isn't the whole of Scripture, right? And 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 as true as it is, and as important as it is that we never lose touch mm. with that, it isn't the only way in which we should be enacting not just the Lord's yeah. Supper, but our spirituality in general. You know, and and I think the you know in a lot of charismatic churches, I think they're more likely to be drawn to the Lucan than the Pauline. You know, a lot mm. of churches are. It's the suffering that we're allergic to, right? So. Uh, but but of course yeah. we need some integrate we need some integration of of all of it right it, it, it isn't an either or and yeah. it's not something I think we can just decide which we like better <laughs> you know decide you know what I'm I prefer this to that I mean I think I think it's important that we integrate all of them yeah no I I I think that's yeah it's uh, in our you know in our little small neck of the woods in the vineyard I um I think it was probably five or six years ago I wrote this little booklet. That was uh, called "Come to the Table," and I it was a seven seven week devotional or seven you know devotional uh, seven stage devotional where I took seven different themes around the Eucharist, um, you know, and so forgiveness. Uh, you have um, taste and see that the Lord is good. Yeah, you have good. you know social justice. I think is there, but yeah. I, I also loved that because again going back to that, um, it's interesting how uh, when you look at Isaiah, you see when you look when you read the Eucharist. Um, and the marriage supper of the lamb, which everybody connects those two, right? Like, uh, right. it's interesting how much of a influence Isaiah has on that. And there's a huge emphasis on anticipation of this final feast, um, the consummation of the age. And yep. yeah, that was like for me, that was actually probably the most powerful aspect of of developing my Eucharistic theological lean, leanings. Because again, you know, like I I was really good at at making myself feel really terrible about. 
about myself every time I'd receive communion, which, yeah. as you noted, I think it's obviously self-reflection is a really good practice um, because I think in the sacramental tradition, obviously, there's a, a very strong connection to spiritual formation and the monastic mm-hmm. traditions and whatnot. Um, uh, but I, but I was like really, um, it was it was sad to it took you know twenty plus years to finally understand that the Lord's Supper anticipates a final consummation of the age, and even yeah. Luke, I mean Luke, uh, or yeah. I'm say, I say Paul, Paul and Luke, but Paul notes that right there. You know, we proclaim his death until he until comes he again. Comes, yeah, one exactly. day, yeah, we're gonna one day we're gonna have a celebration with Jesus. And yeah, um, there's a yeah, there's so a that's good. That's really good. There's an early Pentecostal preacher. He was actually a, an Anglican priest who had a Pentecostal baptism experience while he was presiding at the Eucharist. And mm. he would often preach that his hope was that Christ would come while he was presiding at the Eucharist because he felt like that that mm. was the that was the pinnacle of the Christian of Christian worship. And so the perfect moment for for Christ to appear. But to, to circle back for just a moment to your question yeah. about open table and closed table, um, I think that, I mean, I have a lot to say about, about that, but one thing I, I want to make sure that, that I say is anytime we start to police who comes into the presence of Jesus, something has, something is terribly, mm-hmm. terribly, terribly, terribly off, right? I think the only way to talk rightly about closed table, quote unquote, is if I'm thinking about my responsibility to other Christians. So when I come to the table, I'm not only mm-hmm. saying something to God, I'm saying something to you, right? I'm, I'm saying that I belong to the same body that you do and that I'm bound to you just as tightly as I'm bound to Jesus and that you have every right to call on me when you call on him. And mm, I'm, yeah. I'm, I'm being bound to him and to you at the same time and in the same way and, and vice versa. So if, if we're going to talk about a closed table, the only sense that makes is we can't have people. I can't be the kind of person who comes to the table to be with Jesus, but refuses to take responsibility to care for you. Mm. Right. And so if, yeah. if I'm a pastor and I know that there's a man in the congregation who's abusing his wife, I keep him from the table, not because he's unworthy or I'm trying to even worse that I'm trying to protect Jesus from him. I mean, he needs Jesus, but we would mm-hmm. keep him from the table only so that it's clear to the rest of the community and to, most of all to his wife that we take seriously the fact that we're bound to her and to him mm-hmm. by the meal. Yeah. And you're, you're, you're talking about someone who's unrepentant. Yeah, 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 right. Yeah, 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 exactly. Not, right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, so, someone yeah. who repeatedly I just want to clarify refuses. that because I, I think, yeah, yeah. Because, I mean, you know, that's, that's the, uh, the, we always, in our, in our Eucharistic um, aspect of our worship gathering, we always, you know, clarify that this is, that this is, the meal that Jesus left for his his disciples, for his community. Um, but we also always say, hey, but if you want to make a decision today to make a step toward Jesus, we we would welcome you to his table because it's not our table, it's the Lord's table. Um, you know, I, I think it's interesting, though, how um, I just kind of had this thought. Uh, when I talk to other uh, friends who are, you know, maybe Roman Catholic uh, theologians that are 
in that tradition, you know, they have a strong closed table. And I've, I've really oftentimes wondered, uh, you know, just thinking out loud, I'm like, you know, gosh, the more that I saw the Eucharist as a means of grace, the more I could not understand how anybody would not want people to experience that grace. And I just wonder if sometimes this is maybe the implications of our human fallenness. It's almost like, um, you know, we put the we put the cart before the horse a bit when it comes to uh, elevating the Eucharist, right? We elevate it to the point where it becomes more sacred than the one whom we are worshiping or enacting, you know. And I and I obviously am not suggesting any Roman Catholic people listening are worshiping no, the course, Eucharist, yeah. but there yeah. is a sense, yeah, there is a sense where it's a mis, it's almost like a misplaced uh, value system. It's it's overlooking, I think, the implications of Jesus's. Uh, you know, ministry in his in his kingdom, and uh, and I think what you said earlier is absolutely true too. Is it seems like it prioritizes a specific reading of of one text and ignores like four gospels, which right. to me are you know like, yeah. why are we not talking about the way Jesus did this? <laughs> well, I, I think I think though the the case to be made here, it seems to me, is you know, to, to go, but to go back to First Corinthians ten, right? That because there is one loaf, there is one body. What's, what the reason mm-hmm. 1 Corinthians 11 takes place is, is that they're not, they, they are failing to see, right? He says you're, you're failing to discern the body. And so you are guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. And what he seems to be saying there is that you don't see each other rightly. You're mistreating each other, yeah, which right. is a yeah. sin against Jesus. I mean, remember, this is how Paul came. I mean, a few things to say about this. One is, this is how Paul... Yeah. Paul's conversion happened, right? He's on the way to Damascus. We all know the story. Jesus appears, and what he says to Paul is, what what you're doing, right, you're persecuting me. Of course, Paul hasn't done anything to Jesus, right? He's done stuff to Stephen and a lot of other Christians, but he, he didn't do anything to Jesus. But the first word Jesus speaks to Paul is a word that shows him that there's nothing you do to anyone who belongs to Jesus that isn't something you do to Jesus, right? Mm-hmm. And that's sacramental, that, that Jesus' life includes our lives. Right? And then that's exactly the reality Paul is witnessing to, which, again, think about how important this is, that mm. when, when Paul delivers the gospel to his churches, <laughs> he delivers this message. And this is, this is often missed, right? So Paul says in Galatians, when he tells his story about how he didn't receive the message from anyone, any human being, right? That he didn't learn anything from the apostles in Jerusalem. That means that in Paul's testimony, when Jesus taught him the gospel, Jesus taught him the Lord's Supper. Yeah, no, I I think to me, that's like the strongest argument for uh, weekly uh, communion, because if Jesus saw that, that that's one of the central things that he had to teach Paul, it seems like it's a pretty important, uh, important thing. Um, it's his, you know, yeah. because like, it's like you say, Paul, Paul's yeah, very clear. Like I've received from no one else, but the Lord but himself. From the Lord. And this is what he taught me. And, and it's, yeah, it's all embedded in that first word from Jesus to Paul, what you've done to these people, you've done to me. And that's why Paul is so mm. concerned with that. At the end, right at the end of First Corinthians, with listen, you are sinning against Jesus. You're you are guilty of the body. You're crucifying Jesus when you mistreat one another, right? 
And I, and I think yeah. I think one thing that's really important for folks in Pentecostal charismatic traditions to understand is that communion is not my private meeting with Jesus. Right? When I come to the table, I don't come alone. That's right. I come mm. with the whole communion of saints. And I am being called to belong to them. So I I, mm. I do think that, you know, the idea of keeping anyone from Jesus is obscene, right? It, it's blasphemous. I do think, yeah. though, we need to make sure that people understand the call to follow Jesus and the call to his table, which are, are the same mm-hmm. call, is a call yeah. to belong to a people. It's a call to belong to the, yeah, people, right. the people of God. And that means, you know, one of the things that really sickens me about this is that so often we turn these conversations into policing away the, the, the worst people, you know, the people who are the most unchristian. Yeah. 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 We've, we've got it exactly backwards. The people that need to be seriously examining themselves are, are people like me, you know, people who think of themselves yeah. as the ones who have the right yeah. to police the table. Right? Exactly. We're, we're the threat. Yeah. <laughs> like we're yeah, the yeah. ones <laughs> yeah. who are, who are going to end up crucifying Jesus again, you know? And it's, a uh, yeah, it's so, uh, you know, for me, most of the conversations about closed open table, they, they don't get this deep. They don't get deep enough. They don't cut deep enough to mm-hmm. what's actually taking place at the table and what that means for, for us together and not just for us and Jesus, you know, like the, mm. you know, it's, it's binding me to the church, to the whole people of God. And yeah, therefore, um, yeah, I mean, I, I could go on forever about that, but I think you, I think you see what, what I, what I'm. Yeah, what I, I mean, care that's, about that's yeah, no, I totally, yeah. It just, it's always seemed me as seemed to me as particularly troubling when the first uh, thing that people want to do is start figuring out who can and cannot receive. You know, it's like ah, I don't know. There's a lot of texts in the Gospels about that type yeah. of attitude. You know, um, no, that's that's really really helpful. I think uh, for you know, listeners kind of exploring, um, exploring the relationship between the spirit and the gospel and G- the life and ministry of Jesus, the kingdom and, and, uh, the Eucharist, uh, which we'll have to do. I, I, you know, I'm right now, like just starting to really think through a sacramental implication to a charismatic approach to water baptism. Cause mm. I feel like, I know I've read a few of the essays that are out there and I'm yeah. still like, I don't know. Uh, you know, that's such a, in the vineyard movement, we keep, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. Well, we keep on, we keep, we keep on joking around about how we need to sometime, we need to like finally figure out a theology of baptism. Um, you know, so I'd love to have you on for that. That'd be really fun uh, to hear you talk about that as well. I have a PhD student, Andrew Williams is his name. I don't know. Do you know Andrew? I, Andrew and I are buddies. Uh, yeah, he's, uh, he's going to be on an episode of the charismatic, okay. the sacramental charismatic as well. Yeah. You just, is, uh, yeah. Cause I know he's, he's doing work on that. This is what he's writing about. Yeah. And I, yeah. And I think I mean, it, it's, it's good. I mean, it's really good work and I think it's a great place for this conversation to start. And in some ways in, I mean, I think he's, he's not only raising important issues, I mean, he's really showing a way, a way to talk about it. Um, fully i think so um, i can't wait for yeah, you to talk, talk to great. him about it i mean it's it's really important work i think and you know one of the things he's talking yeah. a lot about is the relationship between water baptism and spirit baptism i think that's where some of his most creative mm. work is so be sure be sure to ask him about yeah that. cool 
I'm going to have to. Yeah, we were talking about I'd like to have him on because we he and I both share a huge love for Clark Pinnock. Oh, and, yeah, yeah. I mean, Clark's been. Oh, man. I mean, super influential. Flame of Love is still like my favorite pneumatology out there. Oh, cool. Uh, I always recommend that to people. I'm like, if you read anything, read this. This will help you understand yeah. me. Um, yeah. So I'll have to uh, do that as well. Um, yeah. Well, let me let me ask you this last question before I let you go. And we'll have to, like I said, do another one of these. And if COVID lasts for longer, we've got so much time on our hands to yeah. uh, just record podcasts and nice. things. Yeah. But, you know, you mentioned the Pentecostal history of, of uh, sacramentality a bit. And I, I remember, again, mentioning Dan Tomberlin's book, which I've mentioned that on our, my first introduction. I just said his book was really influential uh, just to, to discover that there were Pentecostals that were thinking about that subject, because at that time I just was unaware of that. And then I stumbled upon your work and Ken Archer's work and a host of other um, other thinkers. I mean, I think Ralph Del, Co- Del Cole, you know, has ha- had been doing that for so long, but we all were like, yeah, you're Catholic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you think about the history of of uh, Pentecostalism, you know, which has a rich appreciation for sacramental theology, and and then it got steeped in maybe the uh, I maybe fundamentalism a bit, and it kind of swung into this Zwinglian approach to to a lot of its theology and practices. And now it seems as if almost every younger Pentecostal charismatic theologian I know, they're all they're all talking about sacramental theology. They're all thinking about how to build on. Um, some of those frameworks existing. What's your? What are your thoughts about the future? Like, what do you see as the future of Pentecostal sacramentality? And is that going to keep on happening, growing? Is there, is there a fair amount of pushback from you know the old guard? You know, just where? where what are your thoughts on that? Well, I, I think Pentecostalism is not a coherent tradition. You know, there are lots of Pentecostalisms, lowercase p and plural traditions. Yeah, tradition, exactly. <laughs> That's right. And even within traditions, there's no coherent doctrine. But I think in general, early Pentecostals, and here I'm talking about, you know, early 1900s, you know, first 20 or 30 years of the 20th century, there were a lot of Pentecostals who were still deeply sacramental, largely because they were still in touch with the Wesleyan tradition. Not only because of that, but largely because mm. of that. They were still in touch with mm-hmm. with Wesleyan sacramentality, and the sacraments, of course, are right at the heart of Wesleyan spirituality. Yeah, and I mean, I, I have a hundred pages of the book devoted to just example after example after example after example of early Pentecostals who reaffirmed that not only about the Lord's Supper, although that's primarily where it is, but also about foot washing, water baptism, and laying on of hands for healing and anointing with oil, and so. You know, one of the things when I started the PhD work, I would never have believed what was actually there in the material. And mostly what I was dealing with were early Pentecostal periodicals. So a lot of these early Pentecostal revivals, churches and and then denominations, they had their own newsletter. And they would be anywhere from two to 16 pages long. They would come out once a week or once a month or randomly. Some of them had huge worldwide readership and some of them, you know, Nobody read them. And it's everything you can imagine. A lot mm. of it's a lot of it's testimony. A lot of it is announcements about so-and-so is going to be holding a tent revival at such and such place. Mm-hmm. But there's also a lot of 
preaching and a lot of theological writing. I mean, one of the things that stunned me about it all is the, the Pentecostalism I knew was profoundly anti-intellectual. I mean, they wanted no, nothing to do with theology of any kind. Mm-hmm. And nothing could be further from the spirit of early Pentecostalism. It was profoundly theological. Not, not, a, not a lot of them were trained, but and they were suspicious of higher ed. They were suspicious of the universities because of Darwinism and and uh, higher biblical criticism, stuff like that, that eventually led to them mm-hmm. kind of tying themselves to fundamentalists. But they were profoundly sacramental and deeply theologically curious and reflective. And I, I read Walter Hollenweger, I'm sure you know his name, right? He was the first one to write a yep. PhD on Pentecostals. Yeah, and, and he, University of Birmingham. Yeah, he was the guy. exactly. He's <laughs> the one who founded it, right? Yeah. He, he said, and I still remember where I was when I read this. He said, so he studied global Pentecostalism before anybody else did. And he said, global, yeah. global Pentecostal spirituality is best characterized as blood and wound mysticism. And it is centered in the celebration of the Lord's Supper as the memory of Jesus' death who was present mm-hmm. in, in the celebration. Yeah. And I was like, forgive my French, that's just BS. Like, like all of that seemed nonsense yeah. to me, right? <laughs> and then I did yeah. my own doctoral work, and the man is right, right? Like, that, that, is, yeah. that is true of a huge number of Pentecostals in the mm-hmm. first 20 or 30 years. I mean, it is deeply mystical. Daniel Costello has a great book on Pentecostalism as a Christian mystical tradition. And he's yeah, Dan- right. Daniel great brings book. some of this up. But early Pentecostals were deeply mystical, but it was a particular kind of mysticism. It was a mysticism of the woundedness of Jesus. And one of the things that's striking is not only was there a really high view of the Eucharist, and they used the language of Eucharist and the language of sacrament, but also a really deep understanding of suffering which mm-hmm. was, was also surprising for me, right? Like, I didn't expect to see that yeah, either. Yeah. And I think that there were different factors that led to the collapse of that. I think one factor is, as Pentecostal movements kind of matured and institutionalized, they found themselves as allies politically and culturally with white conservatives. And the more they aligned themselves with white conservatives, the more they lost touch with the the roots in black holiness tradition and their roots in Wesleyan mm-hmm. theology. And they became more fundamentalist. And I mean, yeah. there were always there mm. were always seeds there. I mean, don't get me wrong. I mean, they were early Pentecostals were not liberals by any means, but they weren't. They also weren't fundamentalists as a rule, although they could be fundamentalistic on all Mm. kinds of things. But that quickly started to change. The more the social and cultural alignment with white Protestants um, intensified, the more I think it worked back on their spirituality. And I think you see that play out in all kinds of ways. One is when they started founding Bible schools, they started using fundamentalist textbooks to train their ministers. Yeah, that's right. right. And, And dispensational textbooks that you know and they're very core (laughs) yeah i i have been saying this uh forever um the study bible put out by uh, the spirit-filled study bible the the new king james version 
Yep. Yeah, I, I remember. Um, so I've never. I've full disclosure. I've picked on dispensationalism every episode so far. So I might as well just go for it. Uh, I, I, I am not a dispensationalist. I am flat fabric flabbergasted by the um, this relationship between Pentecostalism, um, lowercase p, you know, charismatics, all everybody's guilty of it, uh, with this connection to dispensationalism. But I remember reading the the commentary uh, aspect uh, in the new. Living tra- or new, new King James version of the oh, Spirit yeah. Bible. I know. You know. I've got that and I was reading Bible. It. <laughs> yeah, it's like it's interesting because whoever I can't remember who wrote that on uh, Revelation off the top of my head right now, but I remember he notes um, that scholar notes that it's peculiar that that Pentecostals and Charismatics have leaned into uh, dispensational premillennialism as its eschatology because. By its very nature, it rejects and denies the continuation of the supernatural spiritual gifts because we're no longer in the that age, you know, of yeah. of uh, the dispensations. And so, yeah, I've always found that really, really uh, it, it, you know, yeah, weird. It, I guess it, I think, and this is going to take us way afield, and I know we're out of time, but all of this is bound up with race issues too, and class mm. issues. And yeah, one one of the ways it is is Pentecostals were almost without exception, Pentecostals were um, restorationists. They saw the Pentecostal movement Mm -hmm. as a restoration of something the church had lost. And there, there's a whole range of views. And so when I, when I teach it, when I teach my students about it, one of the things I say is you have kind of soft restorationists who see that God Mm -hmm. has always been working in history, but just is doing more now. And then you have hard restorationists, which are, I mean, they, they have essentially Mormon theology of the fall of the church and then the resurrection of the church with mm-hmm. the Pentecostal movement. And you've got, you've got everything in between, right? And many, many of the early Pentecostals could be all over that time, all over that spectrum themselves, depending on yeah. their setting or the topic or whatever else. But one of the reasons I think they were drawn to dispensationalism is that they were still deeply rooted in a colonialist mindset and white supremacy. And I don't know if this is controversial yeah. for your hearers or not, but I mean, I don't we'll, have time we'll to We'll find into out. <laughs> <laughs> but this is one of the things that Pentecostal restorationism suggested is that, I don't know, have you seen the paper that I did on Charles Parham and speaking in tongues? Have you seen this yet? Uh, yeah, quite. Yeah. I mean, who is, everybody knows was one of the most racist uh, people out there, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, the, you he, know, the founder world, of, I mean... Yeah. Yeah. He's a world class racist. Yeah. He's a world class yeah. racist. And even today, there are Pentecostal scholars who are trying to rehabilit- rehabilitate his legacy because they're embarrassed yeah. by, by it and because they're put off by social justice warriors and all that. But the, yeah. the, the fact of the matter is, early Pentecostalism, in all kinds of ways, was, was already bound up with racist ideologies. And dispensationalism. Mm-hmm actually fit those categories it, it suggested mm-hmm. superiority it suggested you know so one of the examples of this is um, I, I don't know if you ever saw this piece that i did but it was it's not in that paper but it, i can't remember right now where it is but anyway it was a it tied all this together in one in one sermon this kind of the pentecostal movement is a last day's restoration of what the church has lost but mm-hmm it was all coded in language of the white man's burden, right? That we are the, 
the Pentecostal movement is to the world what the white man and what the white race is to humanity. Uh, Pentecostalism mm. is to the church what white humanity is to the rest of the rest of the world. And so there's a really ugly underside to all this, you know, that I mm-hmm. think scholars are just now starting to come to terms with, like just starting to yeah, yeah. starting to face. And I, I think mm. so much of this stuff isn't really about theology. It's it's about social political dynamics that then Mm -hmm. force our theologies to shift. You know, one one more factor I'll say, and because I know we're really in controversy, you can just cut all this out. You don't have to. uh, No, this is not getting cut out. This is, this is the good (laughs) stuff. (laughs) But if if you, I'd say, keep drinking, whatever you're doing, keep drinking, keep talking where we're, we're rolling film right now. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I, I, there's so much I want to say, but I just finished a piece that'll be published sometime this fall, I hope. And one Great. of the things that I argued in it is that, and this, this goes back to Hollenbaker, that Pentecostalism emerged as a black movement, even though there were, of course, yeah. many white and brown people caught up in it, and, and it became quickly global. It was, quote-unquote, black in the sense that it came in resistance to the rules that everybody else was playing by. Right. It, yeah, it, came, right. it was it was shaped from you know so one cliched way of talking about this is it came from the margins right rather than from the center of institutional mm-hmm. power and and that that language can be misleading too but there was something quote unquote prophetic about it right it, it was it was like and you know Harvey Cox famously compared it to jazz and 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 said that you know they have the That's same right. history yeah, yeah. For, and and for the same reasons and we in the in the U S we've almost entirely lost that. White yeah. Pentecostals have almost entirely lost that. And yeah. we will never be true to what I think we're called to do as a movement until we recover that. You know, and w- mm. one of the things we one of the things we lost in that is not only our prophetic edge. So Ricky Moore, Dr. Ricky Moore is a mentor of mine, teaches Old Testament at Lee University. He he talks a lot about how you know, you remember the story of the the man who loses the axe head, right? And uh, mm-hmm. It sinks, and the prophet comes and calls the axehead back. He talks a lot about how we've lost our our cutting edge, and and we've lost it, not primarily for theological reasons, but for social and political ones. And mm. this is one of the reasons it's so nefarious when in our churches we try to keep religion and politics separated. You know, where at least we used to. I mean, I think yeah, the twenty, I think twenty sixteen changed a lot of that, but. Yeah, the fact is we're shaped by those forces, whether we admit it or not. And our theology has been when you look at the history, you know, you know, that experience of, you know, you haven't seen someone for years and then you see them again and you're shocked by how different they look. They Mm -hmm. they don't they haven't noticed their own changes because they've been living with them incrementally. And one of the advantages, you know, someone like I have or you have who studies the history of Pentecostalism the change that's happened to our movement is astonishing, right? On every front, right? Yeah, the ways yeah. in which we, we, so we're talking about sacraments, but it isn't just about sacraments. It's about the way we understand men, women and their, their mm-hmm. place in ministry. It's the way we understand the responsibility to care for the poor. It's the way mm-hmm. that we, um, the way that we see the, I mean, so many, so many early Pentecostals were pacifists, right? And, yeah. and we could go on forever with this, but I, I think, 
one of the things that has to happen is that we have to we have to reckon with we're a long way from where we started on all of these issues, including sacraments. Yeah, I I was just um, so you know the um, probably the most influential vineyard person out there is John Wimber, you know, who passed away in 1997. But so there's a whole uh, slew of people in the in the uh, vineyard now who are either unfamiliar with who John Wimber is, or you know, it's been a really long time since they had any. Um, connection to anybody who knew him. So I've been doing these things uh, every once in a while on Wednesdays when I actually have the time to do it, uh, called Wednesdays with Wimber. And I kind of just uh, unpack a little bit of, of some Wimber uh, theology or practices. And yesterday I was thinking about that. And um, by no means am I elevating John Wimber above Jesus. So this is not, you know, not to suggest that. But I was like, man, I wonder if Wimber was alive today, what would he think about the vineyard mm. movement? Um, mm. You know, and also mm. I think the church. I mean, there's been a lot of academic work just showing how Wimber was. A, you know, they call him a grassroots ecumenist. Um, you know, he was definitely a yeah. a guy who had a had a real strong love for the church at large. And so I was thinking about that, and it got me just thinking about you know that in the state of the church and and uh, so there's obviously some really good changes because you know Wimber and this is one of the areas that I would disagree with him I I think in pra- in 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 act- action he was an egalitarian I mean he ordained Jackie Pollinger you know yeah. and he ordained another uh, woman to be a senior pastor when her husband had died but on paper and when he taught he was a complementarian and so you know the vineyard movement is an egalitarian movement now I'm a card carrying egalitarian uh, so mm-hmm. That would be an area where I think he would he would have changed, um, you know, and he'd probably be very happy with some of the changes that have happened. But, um, but I've been I've been really thinking about that because it seems like um, I I really can connect with that idea of losing our edge in a sense, you know, because we've seen that with worship. Um, so I'm like I'm really into underground hip hop and in in oh, hip hop wow. yeah. world. We talk, yeah, we talk a lot about like culture vultures, <laughs> you yeah, know, people yeah. who are outside of the hip hop culture um, who you know, see, yeah. oh yeah, yeah, like, oh, I can make some money off of that. So I'm going to wear my hat backwards or I'm going to buy some Wu-Tang clothing and, you know, put that on. Yeah. And, um, and, but it's interesting how in the church, I think kind of what you're getting at is there's a, there's a bit of that that's happened. You know, we would use other terms. Colonialism might be a more, um, you know, a- academic way to talk about it. But with worship, I think it's interesting how there's a lot of churches um, out there. Lester Ruth uh, at Duke University has, yeah. you know, written a ton of stuff on how the Vineyard, essentially the Vineyard and Calvary Chapel, kind of introduced the intimacy of worship into the, you know, the contemporary church. Um, and so there's a lot of churches that sing the same songs that Pentecostals would sing, but they don't have the underlying theological framework to understand what actually is happening. Sure. You know, we're not just singing songs about God, we're singing songs to God, and it's a space to encounter Him. And and I think that's detrimental to the practices, though, because it's like you're, it's like you have, you're getting a little bit of it, but it's not, you know, it's not the full, the full thing. So I think what you're saying is um, probably true in a lot of different areas of, of the church at large. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Charles Taylor, philosopher, talks a lot about kind of cross mm-hmm. pressures and how we get we get influenced by a lot of different yeah. forces coming at us from a lot of different directions. I think, you know, so if you look, if we, if we think about sacraments, for example, and what I, what I really would hope everybody hears though, is that what's happened with sacraments has happened with worship broadly and with our, yeah. and just with mm-hmm. the way we imagine the Christian life period, right? Like it's, it's affected us so deeply, but 
you, you've got the social political forces, the economic forces that I think are shaping us without us ever acknowledging it, without us ever owning mm-hmm. that that's what's really going on, right? That's right. That we're, we're becoming more and more middle class and more and more white, more and more concerned with though that demographic and mm-hmm. the concerns that go with being in that different demographic. But we're, we're also being shaped by the alignments we make in that process, right? So the more and more we align with fundamentalist voices, even though it's theologically incoherent, we then find ways to make it work, right? So we're, we're in our schools over the decades, we've used dispensational textbooks, you know, like, so for instance, one, one of the books that's been used was used when I was in Bible school was, was a, a Presbyterian systematic theology. Um, his name just slipped my mind. Uh, but it's, it's kind of the culmination. I don't know why I can't remember his name. I wanted to say Jacques Ellul, but that's definitely not it. I wish I had Was it read. Louis Burkhoff? Yeah, Burkhoff. Exactly, Burkhoff. So Burkhoff is the theologian in the Dutch Reformed tradition. I mean, he when we talk about yeah. Calvinists, most of us don't know what we're talking about. When we, when we, but when we say Calvinists, he's who we mean. And Burkhoff yeah. has had an enormous influence on our theologians for generations which is absurd, right? Not that they should read him, but that they would read him Mm -hmm. without knowing what they're reading, without realizing Mm -hmm. how much what he's saying is at odds with who who we are. Not that everything he says is at odds with us, right? So you've got those facts. There's there's some mutually exclusive, yeah, there's some mutually exclusive ideas (laughs) happening, you know, between those two. Yeah, and then, that's right. And that's then, why I think James 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 K. A. Smith has that whole idea of drinking from our own wells, which has been really yeah. influential in my thinking. Mm-hmm. It's like, yeah. yeah, I don't know if we should be going to those folks to talk about, you know, the Holy Spirit. Like, m- there might be some other traditions that would be more helpful to us. Well, I mean, I, I think part of the problem is right is you need to be able to engage in those conversations, but know what you're doing. And I think that part of the problem with with at least my branch of the Pentecostal community we haven't known what we were doing, right? We, we were being pressured mm. and didn't know we were being pressured. We were being changed and didn't know we were being changed. And another factor to name here is the success of our churches in terms of the numerical growth and in terms of the ways in which Christian television, Christian internet ministries, Christian radio back in the day, mm-hmm. we weren't ready for that, what that would do to our theology. And yeah, that's right. Mm-hmm. We are suffering from all of these things, and there are many more things I could name, but all of these things are pressures on us that for the most part, we don't even know are pressures, and we don't even realize mm-hmm. that, they're re- that they're reinventing us. But when you look at the history of our movement, and you look at what we were saying 100 years ago, and what we are saying now, or what we were saying even 30 years ago, and what we're saying now, it's unbelievable how much we've changed. Mm. And, and not always for the worse, like you said. I mean, there are some good things that have mm-hmm. come from that. And I think, I think we should trust yeah. that God is at work in the midst of all this. So I don't, this is not some kind of Jeremiah about how it's all been for loss. But mm-hmm. what, what, what breaks me about it is that it's mostly happened without us even noticing it's happening. That's what bothers me. Not, yeah. not that it's all bad, because yeah, yeah. a lot of it isn't. A lot of it isn't bad, right? Mm-hmm. A lot of it has been good. But we're we're still um, just kind of being blown around by whatever the pressures are. I think you've just made a really great case for why um, 
theological reflection is so important for the church, um, you know, Chris. But it's been, man, it's been a, a, an honor and a pleasure to have you on. I hope that you will come back on and do another one of these things. Um, you know, I just love having having your voice, and you've been, like I said, influential in my life and are a real gift to the church, um, you know, for the kingdom. And we'll be praying for you. Um, I'm hoping that you you come into $2 million, uh, and then you can just move to California and just come on staff at our church for free. So, All right. Uh, but yeah, if you'd, if, you'd, uh, yeah, if you'd be willing to do that. But um, yeah, again, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. So, um, no, this, man, this is a lot uh, of fun. Pleasure. I, I appreciate it. I know, I know I got a little worked up at the end, but um, it was a great conversation. I enjoyed it a lot.